The theory of evolution explains the diversity of life that we see here on Earth today. That over long periods of time, animals which are able to find mates, be able to breed, able to produce offspring, their offspring carry their genetic material, and you've got this process where life evolves to fit the various niches that it finds itself in. But you can only run this backwards to the point of the earliest life forms that we know. And you can even kind of figure out genetically the earlier life forms than that. But at a certain point, you hit this brick wall. And that brick wall is how did you go from non-life to life? The theory is called abiogenesis. And this has troubled researchers for decades, I mean, thousands of years. I don't know. As always, with modern techniques, chemists, biologists, Geologists are starting to make progress on this very tricky question. How did the first life forms form on Earth? And of course, you want to extrapolate that idea to the rest of the universe. Are there life forms on other planets? Did they have a similar version of abiogenesis? What are the conditions that we should look for on these other worlds to be able to know if there's life there? My guest today is Dr. Sukrit Ranjan. He is an assistant professor at the University of Arizona and we have just a great conversation about this idea of, of abiogenesis, how to figure out how to make life and what the implications are for the search for life in the universe. It's a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So uh, when people talk about the theory of evolution, they sort of go, well, you don't know where things started. And so the theory of evolution doesn't make sense. And they are two different theories. Where's that demarcation between what is the theory of evolution and what is abiogenesis? Yeah, that's a great point. So for me, the theory of, of evolution is a conceptual framework which makes certain tests, which provides you a way to interpret the world around us and make sense of how biological complexity came about, but it came about in certain ways and not others, what it, which explains the relationships between some organisms that we see both here in the modern day and in the deep past. And it provides a framework to help us understand that. Uh, and it kind of, if you try to extrapolate that backwards back in time, then it uh, suggests that perhaps we all started from a relatively simple organism with shared common ancestor. And then you can ask the question, how did that ancestor come about? And that's kind of the step that studies of abiogenesis try to address. Um, I guess if I had to address, uh, if I had to address a misconception, to me, I think from night for eighty percent of people, there's no misconception. I would say ten percent of folks think that the origin of life question is solved. Uh, there was a primordial soup on earlier, then we understand the chemical mechanisms by which it complexified to give rise to this ancestor. That's certainly not the case. We made some progress on that question in recent years, but I would say we're if I had a progress bar, I would put us at maybe the five to ten percent level on that, not more than that. So and that might be overly optimistic. So I would say those folks are off there, and there's other folks who argue that this is a question we'll never be able to solve. Uh, and that, in fact, it's a question that's inaccessible to empirical study altogether. And we can't rule that out. Like science is not, you know, science is a discipline which doesn't say uh, this is how things work necessarily. It's, a, it's something that says the following list of explanations don't work. And here's a couple of explanations that might work. And so ultimately, it's an empirical study. It's uh, founded on kind of proofs of demonstrations. And if we are not able to make, do that demonstration in the laboratory and link it to the geological record, then we won't be able to do that measurement. But... So far, uh, every measurement that's been proposed to be ineffable and inaccessible to study has ultimately yielded to some kind of empirical study. It may not be the time right now, but I'm optimistic that uh, probably like within certainly the lifetime of our civilization, we'll get to figure out and answer this question. And I'm optimistic that it'll be within my lifetime. So the fossil record only takes us so far. And then beyond that, we get to a point where we're starting to kind of, it's conjecture about what kinds of characteristics that first life form had. What are the sort of the necessary pieces that you think had to be there to get to sort to, to let uh, you know evolution by natural selection take off from that point forward? That's a great question. First, I would be remiss to point out that uh, you're right. The fossil record doesn't go back that deep, in particular, in detail, doesn't go back that deep. But with phylogenetics, we can do a lot better. So phylogenetics is this is something that the uh, genomists have come up with. It's a really clever idea. It's a way of doing computational studies on the genomes of organisms and tracing back at the point at which they diverged. And by doing that, you can figure out what were the genes that the ancestors of these organisms had. So by doing that, we've actually been able to reconstruct certain aspects of the last universal common ancestor, which we, uh, I think most estimates put it around three and a half billion years ago or so. So we can get back pretty deep in uh, 
um, to all the way to Luca. But as I think you're also pointing out, Luca is not the earliest life. Luca is already a very complex organism. It has translation established. It has a complex uh, metabolic apparatus for surviving in hot environments, a whole bunch of other stuff. And so, yeah, going back from there, we are reliant on, I wouldn't say conjecture. I think there we have to lean on experiments. So um, in Origin of Life Studies, there's what's called a top-down approach, which is reasoning backwards from extant life. That includes things like the fossil record and phylogenetics to reconstruct Luca. And there's the bottom-up approach, which is saying, okay, from our studies of planets, and uh, we through NASA have invested a lot in understanding planets, we can get a sense of what the early Earth was like. And then we can do experiments we can, and under those conditions to ask what are the kind of comp chemical complexification mechanisms that operate. And so I think what a lot of us are looking for is to discover a chemical pathway that goes all the way from things we know that, that abiotic processes that nature provided us to something that looks like life. Uh, and then to look for evidence that this, these specific processes actually happen in real life, that they happen in the rock record, whether here or on Mars or uh, preserved in the meteorite record or something like that. And for me, I think I would be convinced if I saw, um, I think the standard NASA definition is a good one, a self-replicating chemical system that's capable of Darwinian evolution. Just because if I see that, then I see a really clear path to getting from there to Luca. So this idea of like, you know, experimentation, that you you reach what the genomics can tell you, but there is obviously still this earlier organism. And you talk about sort of like what kind of characteristics that it might have. So I guess, is it about sort of taking the earliest possible organism and then sort of removing piece by piece conceptually until you've, you're left with whatever is that minimum viable organism? That, that's certainly one approach that folks have taken trying to build a minimal cell. I think, for example, the Venture Institute over in California, that's the approach they're taking. Um, the problem is, uh, so you're, if you do that, you're able to get to a pretty simple organism, but it's still pretty sophisticated. And it's hard to understand how that could have arisen kind of from random non-directed abiotic processes. And so folks are looking at a whole bunch of different ideas. For example, folks who think about deep sea vet conditions have the idea that um, those deep sea vent conditions, they have pores and vesicles and things like that that look like cells, and so they provided a template for these cells. There's another group headquartered over at the Center for Chemical Evolution over at Georgia oh, State. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And what they argue is that uh, there were certain inevitable natural environmental selection pressures uh, that inevitably drove complexity in a certain direction, so that's a hypothesis. And the exciting thing is that this hypothesis is accessible to empirical test, and that test is ongoing. Another group with which I collaborate are, um, pursues a similar perspective, but they are, their essential argument is that uh, there were probably a bunch of little microenvironments on early Earth where different kinds of origins of life chemistry could have happened. And uh, in one of those environments, there's in, those envi in some of those environments, certain chemistry should be intrinsically favored. They think they found one that uh, works there. Uh, with that, they've been able to make the building blocks. And now the thing that they're working on asking is, is it possible under these natural conditions that are available in the specific environment to have those building blocks come together to have chemical complexity and to have the beginnings of Darwinian evolution. And that's the bit that they're working on now. The answer could be no, in which case that approach is, uh, is shot. We have to go back to the drawing board or rely on one of the other approaches. But so far, the progress has been decent, so I'm optimistic. So can you sort of explain what the experimental apparatus is that actually attempts to test this theory? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it gets to one of my pet peeves which is that um, kind of the experimental side of things is led by laboratory chemists. And this is a really hard problem for them. So the majority of laboratory chemists work in extremely idealized conditions, glass beakers, pure reagents, high concentrations, favorable conditions, and so forth. And their basic argument is that if uh, we have to uh, work under idealized conditions to identify the fundamental chemical mechanism, and then later we can worry about does it work in nature or not. So I'm a planetary scientist. For me, the natural aspect of things is kind of paramount. Um, and so right now what I'm doing is I'm tying into those communities by uh, taking the chemistries they come up with and asking, well, how does this compare to what was available in nature and asking if it works or it doesn't work. In some cases, we find that it doesn't work. In some cases, we find that it does work. And in the most exciting cases, we find that it doesn't work, but there's another uh, potential more planetary plausible mechanism that, uh, that might work. You should try it. And when they try it, when, we, when they improve the realism of their simulations, like for example, when they use sulfide instead of uh, sulfide, they find that often they often find their chemistries work better than before. In fact, by um, kind of doing this iterative feedback loop, by having the prebiotic chemists use more realistic natural conditions, we've been able to articulate solutions to literally half-century-old problems in prebiotic chemistry, like the or like the um, non-enzymatic synthesis of the ribonucleotides, monomers of RNA. Folks tried to do this since the 1970s, uh, and then 
we, we, we kind of winded them a little bit. We were like, you're using an unrealistic sulfur use source, use a more realistic one. And when they did that, uh, not one, not two, but three groups were able to come up with pathways for abiotic ribonucleotide synthesis. So for me, this is an opportunity for planetary scientists and uh, uh, organic chemists to work together. And uh, to me, it's a hint that maybe we're on the right track because as we're improving the verisimilitude of our simulations, the chemistries are performing better and they're becoming, more, they're becoming more, both more realistic and more functional. So there's almost like there's some benefit of it being messy that there are, by having sort of a more accurate recreation of what the initial conditions were, there are pathways and chains and combinations that are happening in ways that, that weren't anticipated. And now you can see them after the fact and go, oh, I see what happened here. This served as a catalyst or that served to sort of bootstrap this other process over, over there. It's almost like it's more brute force than finesse. Yeah, so there's two groups that are taking different approaches. So one group is still pretty finesse. Uh, what essentially happens there is we look at a particular part of their chemistry and tell them you can't have that, try this thing instead. So it's still very finessed, and that's a criticism of that approach, which is that, okay, what's the prebiotic chemist doing that on, on Earth prior to the origin of life? Uh, and there's another set of groups which kind of takes the approach you're embracing with, the so-called messy chemistry approach, which was pioneered, I believe, by Irina Mamajanov over at LC in, in Japan. And uh, they essentially say, well, let's just embrace the complexity. Let's throw everything in there in a giant pot and run basically chemical evolution experiment and see what comes out. And yeah, I think both of them are worth uh, exploring. Like if we go back to the misconceptions, I think sometimes folks uh, argue that you should really focus on one approach versus another. And for me, it has to be guided by the experiments. Neither set of experiments has succeeded yet. And for that reason, it makes sense to me to, to still explore broadly because we still can't be sure we've identified the right path forward, in my personal view. Right. Is there a way to get a sense of a better sense of what the initial conditions were? Like if you're finding such value in recreating the initial conditions, you would think that, that the initial conditions could survive geologically in a way that's more stable than the fossil record. Is there a place that contains the most detailed information about the initial conditions of, of Earth? Absolutely. There are, in fact, four such places. Um, so most of the rock record on earliest Earth is destroyed by the fact we're a habitable planet, by the fact that we have plate tectonics uh, and we have uh, an active hydrosphere. So water erosion and just processing by the mantle destroys most old rocks. Uh, there are some parts, some of the oldest cratons, for example, parts of Australia, parts of the Canadian Shield, uh, which I think you're familiar with. Uh, a lot of really old rocks going back about 4 billion years survived there. And so we're able to get some limited direct evidence from the rock record there. Another thing we're able to do is exploit planetary exploration. So the Earth is a habitable planet, but Mars, the surface of Mars in bulk has not been habitable for about 3 billion years or so. And so the rock record there is very old. But in many other ways, we think it was very similar to Earth. So by studying Mars better, for example, if we get Mars sample return off the ground, we might be able to get a better understanding of uh, what early Earth was like. There's some very specific predictions that have been made for early Mars, for example. And to me, the last and potentially most exciting avenue is uh, from these so-called exoplanets. Um, we've discovered that there's a whole bunch of exoplanets out there. Many of them are uh, rock rocky and in the habitable zones of the stars, so what we call temperate terrestrials. And with upcoming facilities, maybe James Webb could get lucky, all the but certainly with the Habitable Worlds Observatory will characterize the atmospheres. Some of them might be young planets prior to the absence of, uh, without established biospheres. And so by studying them, we might get some sense of what the early Earth's atmosphere is like, or we'd be able to at least test the models we used to understand early Earth. So to me, those are the three big opportunities. Right, right. I mean, the studying exoplanets, although you can get hints and senses, you just can't take the local data in the way that you can with, a, with, a, with planet Earth. And so it, it feels really tricky to get those. Obviously, with Earth, you've got access to the rocks and, you know, and there's already so much inconclusive information about, about exoplanets. Um, that's going to be such a tricky thing to do. And then, of course, with Mars, like, you know, you don't have, you don't know every single spot on Mars and you haven't grabbed millions of samples like geologists have on Earth. And so how do you know if you're going to find that? And if Earth and Mars, are, so like, obviously this is so complex. So it sounds like Earth is, so is it like pulling out cores from the Canadian shield? That's like your, the, the best spot on Earth or in, in parts of Australia? Uh, yeah. So the parts of Australia and then uh, some parts of the Canadian shield are the best parts. We can't do cores. Uh, cores are way too processed. You actually have to look at fragments of rocks, so-called zircons, which are these uh, really hard, like, 
messengers that have survived for literally four billion years. And so you can look at that, and from there you can measure isotopes, and that tells you. For, that's how we know, for example, when liquid water appeared on the Earth. We know that liquid water has been on the Earth for about 4.2 billion years, uh, possibly more. We, that's how we know the mantle redox state, which is how we know the mix of uh, gases volcanism was putting into the atmosphere. We have direct constraints there. And that's how we know things like the amount of, we can place bounds in the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. We've already been able to do some of this for Mars. Uh, we've been able to measure the so-called sulfur mass independent isotopic record for Mars. And from measuring that record, we have been able to uh, tell that Mars had periods where we know that there was very little oxygen in the atmosphere, not from a model, but from direct geological evidence measured from Martian meteorites. And so the hope is that we will be able to do similar things with a rock record. Similarly for exoplanets, I think you're right, we won't get any of the fine details, but I'll give you a concrete example. One of the proposals for origins of life chemistry on Earth is that it, uh, it happened in the aftermath of a large uh, meteor impact, which would have generated a highly reducing atmosphere full of things like methane and hydrogen and ammonia and stuff like that. And that's an extreme enough scenario that if this actually happened on an exoplanet, we should be able to detect it. So if we go out and we survey exoplanets and we see an exoplanet, a rocky exoplanet that's in the state, which should be impossible, like you shouldn't see it anywhere, you, know, you should only be able to see it in the aftermath of a large impact. And we direct corroboration, for example, evidence of, of a, comet, a large population of comets or other impactors in the system. Then that'll tell us that that'll be a really strong argument for that potential, uh, that proposed original life hypothesis. So like to me, that's kind of the, the, prom the promise of exoplanets is that some of these extreme scenarios that have been proposed for early Earth are potentially testable on exoplanets. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about this idea of biosignatures that, you know, right now, JWST is able to actually detect various chemicals in the atmospheres of, of exoplanets. And so you're starting to see things like carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and water and things like that. The hope, of course, is to see the kinds of chemistry that would give an indication that there's life there. But my understanding right now is that the astrobiology community is, you know, has no certain biosignature that they can absolutely agree upon yet. Uh, what is sort of your take on the, the search for a definitive biosignature? Yeah, that's a great question. So for me personally, I tend to espouse uh, David Grinspoon's idea. I think he's, he's chief scientist for astrobiology over at NASA now. Uh, what he essentially argues is that uh, with remote life detection, what you're essentially looking for is an anomaly relative to an abiotic baseline. So the way to figure this out is to get a really good understanding of what planets look like in the absence of life, and then look for anomalies, and then ask uh, what are potential explanations to that anomaly. And you know maybe we figure out that planets can work in a really weird way that you can generate that anomaly. For example, we've done this exercise with oxygen. And it turns out that there's a few different ways we can imagine in which a planet might abiotically generate a whole ton of oxygen. But for some other gases like methane, for example, it's been relatively hard to figure out how to generate a ton of abiotic methane. And I think folks like Maggie Thompson and Josh Christensen Totten have really looked into this in a lot of depth. Um, obviously, we haven't thought as much about methane as we have about oxygen. So maybe if, as that gets more attention, we'll, we will come up with false positive mechanisms. But the hope is that eventually there'll be, we'll make an observation of something that's anomaly relative to an abiotic baseline that we try really hard to explain abiotically and we can't. And there's a natural biological explanation that makes sense. And then so that would give you a probabilistic constraint on the, uh, on the existence of life, which, I would, uh, which would be intriguing to look at. And then the big great hope with exoplanets is uh, the so-called statistical comparative planetology approach. And the idea there is that, sure, on any individual planet, a, a putative biosignature isn't that is perhaps uh, subject to a lot of risk and uncertainty. But what if there's a correlation? Like, for example, just making something up, what if we survey a whole bunch of planets uh, in the uh, orbiting other stars, rocky planets, and only the ones that are habitable, that are so-called rocky and in their habitable zones of their stars, uh, have abundant oxygen and methane in their atmospheres? To me, that would start to be a hint that, okay, maybe there is a uniquely biological connection here. Because you can imagine that maybe one planet is a weird or one planet has something super weird going on, but a whole bunch of them, that seems a little bit of a tougher sell to me. That seems like a very geologist perspective, that you are considering the rock in the context of where you found it. You're, you're looking up the slope and you're seeing the, the cliff that the rock might have fallen off of. And in this case, you're comparing the rock in this, the planet against the other rocks that are in the vicinity mm -hmm. for a lot of clues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Th I think, th I think that's correct. The system science versus the integrative, uh, comparative planetological approach. And, and then to take that kind of to the next level, which is that 
we're still really at the nascent stages of analyzing the atmospheres of exoplanets, but over the coming decades, we should end up knowing the atmospheres of hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of, of planets. Do you think that, are you expecting that those worlds that do have biosignatures are going to stand out like, like a sore thumb across the, you know, the statistics? So let's set some expectations here. What we're hoping to do in the next two decades with James Webb is to figure out, do rocky other rocky planets have atmospheres? That is what James Webb, we hope, is going to be able to <laughs> yes, tell it. us reliably. Sure. Uh, uh, the, what, we will only be able to detect biosignatures uh, with James Webb if we get super lucky, by which I mean uh, there's not only a gas, is, a planet is not only inhabited, but it's inhabited by a super active biosphere that's dumping a ton of gas into its atmosphere, like it's dumping gas into its atmosphere at rates comparable to the weight re regenerating oxygen on Earth. So like that's a really optimistic case. And the other thing that's really killing us right now is stellar activity. So with James Webb, uh, we can only study planets orbiting, because of the way it's uh, designed, we can only study planets orbiting small stars, stars roughly the size, uh, stars much, much smaller than our sun. And it turns out those are really active. They have a lot of flares, they have a lot of star spots. And that generates noise. It imprints, um, it, it creates something that, uh, it adds uncertainty to our interpretation of the data. And right now that's absolutely killing us. So a lot of really smart folks are trying to figure out ways we can understand those star spots battle and model them out and extract a spectral signature. But even with that, even when you're, even if you're able to deconvolve those data and remove those noise sources, some of that noise will remain. So the prospect of finding biosignatures with James Webb, I would say it's possible, but we're gonna have to get lucky. Uh, I have a lot more hope for the 2040s for this so-called uh, Habitable Worlds Observatory, which is this NASA proposed mission that is will be purpose designed to look for biosignatures on planets orbiting sun-like stars. And that's, that's a different, like James Webb was designed in an era we didn't know exoplanets existed. And so it wasn't really designed to do any of this stuff. We're just kind of getting lucky with, it turns out that people are clever and can figure out cool things to do with that. With Habitable Worlds Observatory from NASA and with Tianlin from China, uh, there's a possibility that we're going to be able to, to uh, get, because it'll be purpose-built, we'll be able to face much more stringent constraints. And maybe we won't uh, necessarily, like, we have a high false negative risk. There's a possibility that there will be an inhabited world that we'll miss. But certainly I think there's a good shot that we'll be able to tell if planets like ours, that is with oxygen and methane-producing uh, biospheres, and maybe one or two other gases, we'll be able to tell if those planets are common or not. Like, what do you think about, about false positives with these kinds of biosignatures? Oh boy, I love false positives. It keeps me employed, it keeps a roof over my head. So yeah, I think about uh, my personal research interests is in thinking, what do habitable planets look like in the absence of life? And what is kind of broad gamut of surface states and atmospheric states that they might have? And so I spend a lot of time thinking about false positives. I think that false positive science is really important, by, and I should, I should eliminate the jargon. By false positive, I mean a, a theoretically proposed abiotic mechanism for, the, for generating abundant quantities of a gas that biology also generates, with the canonical example being oxygen. So I think this that false positive science is uh, important, but it's also to some degree in its infancy. Let's let's look at oxygen, for example, because that's the best developed example. Uh, over the last about 15 years, we've articulated a number of false positive scenarios for oxygen as a biosignature. So I would say that um, if you talk to an exoplanet person, they'll be like, oh, oxygen, well, you know, it's it's really uncertain. It's not a very good biosignature gas. But um, even there, we've only really started thinking about it in a serious way in the last 15 years, and academia moves super slow. And so, for example, one of the limitations is these mechanisms are all theoretical. Pretty much every false positive mechanism that's been published so far has, uh, until recently, was a single model. So one person develops a model and runs it, and they find a false positive mechanism and they report it. But uh, one, the heart of science is reproduction. And so one test that hasn't been done until just the last five or six years has been demanding that you, uh, a false positive mechanism reproduce across models. And when we've done that, we found that a lot of these false positive mechanisms have gone away. For example, looking at photochemical false positives, uh, false positives that are driven by UV light interacting with molecules in a planet's atmosphere. There are three proposed false positive mechanisms for oxygen as a biosignature, and two of those have been eliminated just in the last five years or so. So we're down to one out of three. And like we haven't looked at that third one yet, so it's entirely possible that that'll go away as well. So my view on false positive science is that it's important. It's, you have to do it. It's really worth doing. But 
uh, the work that uh, I and others have done over the last uh, five or six years has made me a little bit more optimistic about it. We have found that those many of those false positives haven't held up, and that the case for these gases as biosignatures is stronger than it was thought previously. I mean, we have discovered life on Mars, what, three times now? There's the Viking experiment, there was the, um, the Allen Hills meteorite, there was the discovery of methane on Mars, and then they all turned out to be inconclusive. Astrobiologists still argue about whether or not they were actually signs of life. Do you think that the field is overly cautious now to not sort of say anything is a sign of life until they've really nailed down those false positives? I think the field is not a monolith and different folks will have different standards of proof and that'll always be the case. Like I've met some folks, particularly folks who are laboratory microbiologists who will never believe any claim of life unless they specifically, their particular lab gets a cultured sample and grows it in their particular lab. They will just never believe it. I've met other folks who are like, yeah, if I see something super weird in the atmosphere remotely, I don't really need to even do a false positive analysis, I'll buy it. So um, I do think that the, if you look at the field as a statistical whole, the standards of proof are kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that I think that what our solar system exploration has told us is that we didn't get lucky within the solar system. There's no obvious global biosphere that's present there. And so what we're fighting about now, or what we're debating now, is is there a trace biosphere anywhere in the solar system hidden in one of these putatively habitable niches beyond Earth? That's the level of debate we're having here. With exoplanets, we're hoping that we get lucky. We're hoping that there's another global biosphere, another super habitable planet out there similar to Earth where uh, Earth life is not just present, but is dominant, completely colonizing the surface like life does here on Earth, completely controlling the atmosphere like life does here on Earth. And we're hoping that, that if we, we're hoping that if we get lucky in that way, we will eliminate a lot of these ambiguities. For example, returning to methane as a biosignature, there's a whole bunch of abiotic ways to generate small amounts of methane. So you can very readily imagine ways to, even if, uh, even if you assume the methane on Mars is, is there, which is still debated, the, uh, you can imagine ways you can abiotically generate that amount of methane. But generating a, enough methane to be seen from an exoplanet, which implies a really gigantic production flux, that hasn't been done yet. No, no one's been really been able to come up with a very convincing mechanism uh, to do that. So to me, the, hope, the, the great uh, hope of exoplanets is that it provides us about a hundred, uh, possibly dozens to hundreds of opportunities to get lucky to uh, identify another literally Earth-like planet, Earth-like biosphere. Yeah, so if the conditions are right, like if the planet is orbiting around a, like a star like the sun or maybe a K star where it's getting lots of energy input and it has the right raw materials and life gets started, I guess the thought is, is that it will take over the entire planet in the way that life on Earth did versus stuff that's just like, you know, barely surviving in nooks and crannies. Yeah, that is the hope. And like the, as you point out, like with the, the whole challenge with Mars is that it's not habitable anymore. It looks like it may have been habitable at the beginning, but now it has a desiccated surface. It's highly oxidizing, which is toxic to uh, at least of the surface environment. It's toxic to most biomolecules and most life. Uh, it has a, a variety of uh, challenges, but that's ultimately because of its bulk parameters. It's because Mars is small and because Mars is located far from its host star. But there's a whole bunch of other planets that we've already discovered out there that are not like this. They're relatively massive, so they can hold on to atmosphere, their atmosphere, and they're uh, located at a temperate range of installations from their host star. So it's so if liquid water is there, it's going to be stable in the long term. So the hope is that we can find um, exo-Earths, not exo-Marses or exo-Venuses or exo-Titans or whatever. And so, like, what would be like if someone presented? a list of a thousand planets in front of you and you could run some kind of filter on that list to to decide which ones you're going to observe first. What do you think would be the most interesting worlds to look at first? Yeah, so that that would be a truly extraordinary bounty. Uh, we're not I don't think we're going to have that many objects uh, with habitable worlds observatory for example. We know the target list, it's only the nearby stars so that so we know our target list is going to be, I guess, roughly 50, maybe if we're lucky, 100 or so objects. So that would be an insane bounty, first of all. So right now, the re realistic regime we're in is one where we're not going to have that degree of choice. We're just going to have a certain list of objects we can look at, and we're going to have to try to check all of them. If uh, the universe is different, we have some new technology, a bunch more are accessible, and we have to pick and choose. Um, yeah, there's kind of... Like, I would still primarily go by spectral detectability, because it's still, even with the Habitable Worlds Observatory or Tiamlet, it's going to be a really challenging measurement to do. It's going to be really, really hard. So you're still going to choose the most observationally favorable objects, which means that worlds that are close to 
relatively close to the uh, to the solar system, um, certainly rocky planets. Uh, and then after that, I would probably do something super simple and apply the principle of mediocrity. The principle of mediocrity holds that we are not special, we are probably average. And so if I'm trying to find something else that looks like us, I'd try to find something that looks like an Earth twin in many ways, orbiting a sun-like star, close to an Earth radius, close to an Earth mass. So like if I'm making up something and looking, uh, that's what I'd be making up and looking for, is something as close to us, under the assumptions that whatever the secret sauces that made us have life and not, you know, abundant life and not like Mars or Venus or whatever, that would be uh, uh, hoping that if you if you just try to like do this kind of voodoo cargo cult science, you end up picking the right parameter and looking at the right place. As we look out with, say, the Habitable Worlds Observatory into the future, and we sort of start to analyze this bubble that's larger and larger around us, and if we mm -hmm. don't see any sign of these really obvious, blazing, biosignature, life-infused planets, what do you think that does for the chances of their life in the universe at all? Yeah, so I think that what it tells, I think you've identified the hit on the right thing that we can actually constrain, which is that we'll be able to tell that life like ours, like planets pregnant and bursting with life, are not common. They're in fact very rare. And that'll actually tell us, that'll actually strongly constrain certain theories of life and planetary evolution that we have already. For example, there's, uh, it'll tell us that ideas like rare Earth, which holds that uh, the emergence of a planet like ours is quite rare, is more, is more likely than has previously been considered. Whereas other uh, perspectives on the origin of, of on the emergence of life, which holds that if you have the basic requirements and the source of disequilibrium, it'll emerge inevitably anywhere in the same way. It'll tell us that those probably don't work. Uh, I don't think we will we'll be able to use that. A uh, non-detection will help us place strong constraints on theories of abiogenesis, uh, just for the reason that it's very possible to have cryptic biospheres. People have pointed out that it's super weird that we have so much oxygen in our planet's atmosphere. Why hasn't something eaten it already? Why hasn't it uh, combined it with like the uh, nitrogen in the atmosphere to make nitrate? Or why hasn't it combined it with uh, the free organic carbon we have on the surface to make some other kind of biology? And so folks have pointed out that uh, if you do bios bio uh, biosphere modeling, it's possible to have a thriving biosphere, that, but just is one that is not detectable. So a non-detection won't tell us very much because that's completely compatible with both the absence of life and the existence of life here, these so-called cryptic biospheres. But what it will tell us is that um, something about us is weird. So what habitable worlds, in my opinion, is really going to robustly tell us is are we weird or not? Or like that's what we'll learn from it. And I think that'll be a really important part of the, cos of, of the cosmic context uh, because it'll help us gain it. I don't know. For me, like knowing that would just, it would reinforce to me the importance of kind of nurturing what we have here at home as something that's really special and is unlikely to be available elsewhere. It'll tell us that like Carl Sagan's idea of us as, star stuff that's grown to know itself, it, mean, it will be a particularly precious kind of star stuff. We're not ubiquitous. We really have to treasure and preserve what we have here. That idea that Earth is unusual chemically because there's all of this free oxygen that's not being utilized, I guess what is, why aren't we using all our oxygen if it's just free for the taking? Yeah, so the short answer is that um, biology, uh, despite being incredibly clever, has not yet become clever enough. Specifically, in order to exploit these sources of chemical free energy on Earth, we, uh, we need certain enzymes. Those, the uh, availability of those enzymes is limited by the supply of certain cofactors, metal cofactors. For example, in the oceans, um, in modern Earth's oceans, we are not limited by the supply of energy that's available to us. We have plenty of that from the sun. Uh, we're limited by the amount of phosphorus, which is a bioessential element, which is very rare on Earth. Uh, so you can imagine on, a, on an exoplanet, if somehow you have access to a bunch more phosphorus, then maybe you end up in a regime where you're able to exploit these chemical disequilibria more efficiently, life is able to be more productive. And conversely, because it's able to be more productive, it's able to consume that oxygen in the atmosphere more efficiently and, and create one of these cryptic biospheres, one which is invisible from a distance despite potentially having even more biomass than the Earth. Wow. And, and so I sort of think back to chemistry that you've got sort of whatever is the rate limiting step in, in what it is that you're doing, that's what defines how well the actual uh, process can go. And in this case, you're talking about this from just the scale of an entire planet. We are limited by phosphorus. Therefore, we are as efficient as we can be with the amount of available phosphorus. That's yeah, crazy. What's insane is, have you heard about these so-called Redfield ratios? Red, no, no. So the Redfield ratios are totally bonkers. If you, you, one of the things you can do is you can take measure the atom ratios of the amount of nit phosphorus to nitrogen to carbon and oxygen and so forth. And uh, particularly for uh, phosphorus and nitrogen, the ratios are very, very strict. 
If you go, go to almost any, uh, across most of the planet's oceans, they, you have the exact same ratios that are the, of these uh, elements and that are being utilized by biology. And the typical explanation for that, the, the reason people argue this is the case, is that as you, point, as you kind of stated, biology's util is being as efficient as it's, as it's possible to be. It's limited by the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen. It's using them as efficiently as it can. And that's what's driving these ratios to these, uh, the, uh, those particular values across the entire planet. So, like, yeah, it does seem like that's the regime we're in. Biology is being as efficient as it can as it knows how to be. Uh, but if in the future biology comes up with a way to avoid uh, get around this requirement, if it's more biochemically clever than it is today, uh, or if you just those nutrients aren't limiting, like phosphorus or nickel cofactors or iron cofactors, then maybe you can have an even more productive biosphere, but one that consumes these disequilibria and ends up being even harder to detect. Right, that that because it's all running perfectly, there's no excess waste being dumped into the atmosphere then the yeah. whole machine is running in a way that is untraceable. That's really interesting. And it, I mean, we've had for, I guess, three and a half billion years for life to figure out all of the tricks that it has here on Earth. But, mm -hmm. but we know that the universe, that were planets were habitable billions of years before we got going. So is it then expected that the older a star might be, then maybe the more efficient its ecosystem has become over time? Yeah, that's a really great question. I'm not sure that one could naturally draw that argument because if you look at, for example, the amount of disequilibrium in Earth's atmosphere, that amount of dis disequilibrium has increased with time. Um, and that's been primarily like uh, a consequence of the advent of oxygenic photosynthesis and it's growing increasingly efficient with time. And what seems to be going on there is that like energy just isn't limiting at the surface of a habitable rocky planet, it seems. Uh, at least on our, our Earth. What seems to be limiting instead is the availability of these trace uh, catalytic partners like nickel for uh, the nitrogen cycle, I think iron for iron cofactors for certain kind of, kinds of enzymes and so on and so forth. So yeah, like I, th I think that it's really hard to draw a general rule that embraces all planets. I think it's sensitive to the details and then specifically the details of the supply of these micronutrients. And so... Yeah, I don't think we can articulate a kind of general law like that. I, I apologize. That's not a very exciting answer, but I think it's a correct answer. No, no, no. But I, but I sort of think about that from a technological standpoint, that, that the longer a life has been around, we would assume, or the longer that a technology, technological civilization has been around, the more time it's had to advance its technology or wipe itself out. Uh, you know, we look back just a couple of hundred years and how much advancement we've already made and sort of predict what's going to happen in, into the future. Um, life just in general, evolution works at a different timescale than technology does. Um, now, we haven't talked at all about technosignatures. How do you think about technosignatures sort of in relation to other biosignatures? Oh my gosh, if you see a technosignature, it'd be super awesome. Like if you see something like SF6 in the atmosphere or CFCs, particularly in combination with something like oxygen or methane, at that point, it's so much harder to produce those abiotically and so much harder to liberate them from the rock in most cases that the degree of ambiguity is just massively reduced. So I think we should absolutely have technosignature search as a component of our strategy. And to me, the exciting part is a lot of the technosignature folks who ask, who figure out, okay, if we're going to look for kind of biosignatures anyway, how do we pig piggyback a technosignature search on top of that? Because there you're avoiding any trade-offs. You're not saying, okay, I'm going to design this thing to look for a technosignature versus I'm going to look for a biosignature. You're saying, hey, I'm going to look for a biosignature. But um, if a technosignature comes along, I'm going to be open to that and I'm going to be sensitive to that. The reason I think this is important to do is that, like, if you go back and look at that Drake equation, there's so many unconcerned parameters. Broadly, the three brick sources of uncertainty in the Drake equation, which estimates the number of technological civilizations in the galaxy, is what is the frequency of habitable planets? What is the frequency of those habitable planets that evolve life? And what is the frequency of those planets that then uh, develop technological civilizations? Just in the last ten, five, year, five to ten years, we've started to constrain the first one, the fraction of habitable planets. That's a thing that we're going to figure out, I think, through James Webb, is we're going to get that census. So that huge amount of uncertainty, which we, we have very poor constraints on, is now going to be solved. Uh, the next big thing that we're hoping to figure out is the biosignature aspects. So we're like, okay, that's your one big knob over there. The, the reason folks don't like leaning on technosignatures as their primary case is then you have that second knob over there, and that's, again, something that could be anything. It, the, it could be one to zero. It could be, um, it's really easy to do or really hard to do. So folks don't like conditioning on that too strongly. 
But if you can look for type signatures at the same time as biosignatures, to me, that's a two for one and an obvious thing to do. When I think about about life in the universe, I sort of look at planet Earth as an analogy and not like like the Earth as a, as a type of planet, but more like like life has found its way into every nook and cranny, every niche on our planet. Wherever life can exist here on Earth, it does. What would an inhabited universe look like, do you think, if it was obvious? Gosh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Do you mean like what would an ideal, uh, what would it be an observation well, that would really make me think it's alive? No, no. Like, so say you go to an island in the South Pacific that mm -hmm. is fresh volcanic, it was freshly pushed out of the water and now there's no life on it because no life has mm -hmm. found its way. And then you go to a place that is a million years later, a Hawaiian island mm -hmm. or something, and the place is yeah. lush, verdant, green with trees right. everywhere. Um, that is the difference between raw, untouched wilderness and a place that has been fully colonized by life. Mm -hmm. What, you know, if we extrapolate that concept to the Milky Way and think about life sort of moving to whatever is, is its maximum, you know, we're billions of years, whatever is its maximum equilibrium. What do you think that would look like? Sort of if you could sort of zoom in and zoom out and zoom into every world around the Milky Way and sort of get a sense of what the unit, what the galaxy would look like. Gosh, I really don't that know. Is still not making any sense? I, I'm having a, yeah, I'm having a little bit of trouble processing that. Like, I, like, I think to me, the reason I'm having trouble processing that, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, so, okay, so, so for me, when I look in the universe, I see an untouched wilderness. I don't see giant, gigantic galactic civilizations who have, who have Dyson swarmed all of their stars and they're moving the stars around into more realistic, uh, more useful, and they're feeding all of their stars to their black holes and they're powering their, their, you know, their super laser transportation systems like like what it looks like wilderness to us it doesn't look like civilizations have done things but even just like life itself when i look at when i think about being on the hawaiian islands every spider that found its way there and then colonized the whole place every every coconut found its way there and then filled the whole place and i just wonder like from a kind of a macro and a micro view what does the galaxy what would the galaxy look like if it was maximally inhabited I, like. I think that's a really challenging question to answer just because we don't understand the evolution of our own technological civilization uh, very well. Like we're really bad at extrapolating into the future. So for example, like, um, you know, 50 years ago, our assumption is that our population would increase beyond bound and we'd have to, we'd have to colonize the solar system just because there's not enough space here on earth. And now we've seen that as our civilization is getting wealthier and wealthier, our birth rates are crashing. We're going to have peak population later this century. And then who knows where we're going to go from there. It's looking like our population is going to decrease pretty steadily. Similarly, um, we made the assumption in the middle part of the last century that technological civilizations pump out a whole bunch of energy. And as we get more technologically intense, as we develop more power sources, we're going to keep pumping out more energy in the form of radio waves and other remotely detectable things. But uh, the lesson of the last 20 years has been that that's inefficient. It's inefficient to dump energy out into the cosmos. And so like, um, there are some folks who argue that uh, we're already less radio uh, loud now than we were 30 years ago. Because we've stopped, for example, dumping, uh, transmitting. We don't. We no longer get our, our TV for the most part by bouncing giant uh, radio signal transmissions off the ionosphere, which creates a bunch of leakage. Now we've transmitted over cable instead, which is much more efficient. And we're in, we're increasingly uh, making our information transmission much more and more efficient. So we're reducing the amount of waste we're dumping out in the cosmos. It's kind of a technological version of the idea you're, you're articulating for biology, which is that as we get more advanced, we're eliminating the disequilibrium and the free luncher that we're losing. Right. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. That, that past process were very wasteful and now yeah. we're more efficient. Yeah. 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 So it's possible, like, I don't know, maybe it's going to, maybe like a hundred years from now, we've evolved into this like eco paradise civilization where we're like, we're very comfortable who we are. We've reached some kind of steady state population. We don't really feel the need to expand and grow much more. We've uh, switched mostly to like, I don't know, renewables or something like that back with really efficient batteries. And we're just very happy living a very efficient lifestyle that generates very few technological signatures, but still uh, would still generate biosignatures. So like, yeah, like there's two, to me, there's, 
once you introduce sociology into the equation, we don't even understand our own sociology. It's so hard to imagine how we could predict someone else's sociology. Biology is still really hard and really contingent, but like to me, it's a little bit less contingent than sociology. Right, and so it's back. It's almost like the cryptic version of of technological civilizations that they are becoming hidden. The more the more efficient and just the more they've they've matured and come into their own, the harder they're going to be to find because they've just reached whatever is a steady state that they like. And if we reach a little bit for the Star Trek analogy yeah, really of oh, more more civilized group uh, civilizations have less war. Like the biggest, my understanding is that the biggest way in which we were dumping radio waves earlier was air defense radars looking for, you know, ICBMs crossing from the Soviets and vice versa. And as that's quite like, that's quieted down a whole bunch, particularly with satellite surveillance and stuff like that. So you can imagine that maybe we become a lot more peaceful in the future. That stuff is going to quiet down even more. So I don't know, like maybe we have a, a very low impact future ahead of us and maybe other civilizations have trodden that path as well. Like, I guess for me personally, like on an aesthetic level, I'm a really big fan of like settling the cosmos and like expanding outwards. So that's not, I, w I would rather we be expanding so that there's an incentive to go out and into the into the universe. Uh, but I can't deny that as a, a plan B as a backup prize, like having a really efficient civilization that has a very light touch on its on its cosmos and everyone is self-actualized and pretty happy. That, that doesn't seem like a, such a bad option either. No, that doesn't sound so terrible. Uh, well, Sukri, what are you obsessed with right now? I'm obsessed with understanding uh, dead but potentially living planets. Like, to me, the big growth area in my field, we've done a lot of thinking about planets that could never be alive because we've found a bunch of those in the solar system, like dwarf planets, objects like Pluto and so on and so forth. We've studied a lot of about our own living planet, uh, but we haven't studied a lot about planets that could be like, that are, are like Earth, but never evolved life. And that's important because that's a null hypothesis for biosignature research. It's the kind of planet Earth was prior to the origin of life. And so if you want to understand life as a planetary phenomenon, that's what you need to understand. And I think it's eminently understandable. What you the reason it hasn't been understood already is that you have to understand the abiotic chemical processes. And we haven't bothered to understand those because the biotic chemical processes on Earth overprint them by somewhere around three orders of magnitude. Typically, biology is like a thousand times better at doing things than abiotic processes are. But if you're interested in this problem, it's something that you can answer. Like you can go out and do the measurements in the laboratory. You can go out and make the measurements on other planets in our own planet and figure out what those processes will operate and how efficiently they operate. And to me, that's I think we've started to cottoning onto that. We've started investing resources in that direction. And I think that that's something within the next half century or so we'll, we'll interpret and understand, which will be a critical foundation for habitable worlds observatory and similar missions. Right. Better understand the dead planets so that then we can find the living ones. Exactly. Yeah. And it's something we can do, like, and you'll derive fundamental chemical knowledge that'll be useful not only within kind of the astrobiology community, but it'll be useful beyond it. For example, folks who are working on uh, non-enzymatic synthesis of RNAs, their fundamental chemical techniques are also used in so-called green chemistries, which use water as a solvent instead of organic solvents, which are greenhouse gas intensive. Similarly, some of the work that we've been doing trying to understand sulfur cycling on early Earth is applicable to understanding wastewater treatment. So there's a lot of synergies there. Do you think it's a, there's a pathway to sort of also understand maybe life as we don't know it? I mean, we always talk about this, you know, water as a solvent, organic chemicals. Do you think there'll be a way to kind of on these dead planets, what seem, are seemingly dead planets, maybe there are other pathways to life that we don't understand? Within the solar system, absolutely. So my old, one of my old advisors in grad school used to say that in a discovery, you're allowed two degrees of crazy. With exoplanets, you're, the one degree of crazy you get is claiming a remote detection of life. So you're not allowed a whole lot of crazy in the kind of life you're looking for. In the solar system, in principle, you can go out and get a sample and get a culture and like bring it back and study it. So in that particular case, um, if you, you, I could imagine we would detect life as we don't know it, life using sulfuric acid or organic chemicals as a solvent or it's in some way more exotic. But the standard of proof for detecting life as we don't know it is going to be actually having it in the lab, culturing it, studying it directly. And so for that, a program of solar system exploration is what's really important in my view. Right, right. And that, and that then, in theory, if we get a sample of the atmosphere of Venus and the, the atmosphere and the surface of Titan and maybe even a, something from Pluto, because why not, Yeah. and study that in the lab, and maybe you do find some weird chemical process that's going on that is, that is life but not connected to us, then mm -hmm. that gives you new kinds of bioscanners. And then you look out into space to exactly. find those. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to be validated in the solar system yeah, before yeah, you can really use it for exoplanet life search, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, so we're really lucky that we have 
like Venus, for example, as a, as a great example of a world that is very different and yet has all the same kind of starting conditions as Earth and yet is, has such different chemistry on, you know, on the planet. Yeah, Mars, Venus, and Earth provide us such a beautiful example of comparative planetology. It helps us begin to tease apart the effects of planet mass versus the effects of planet insulation, all that kind of stuff. And it's just such a great laboratory. We got really lucky being born in the solar system we did. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Sigrid, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was really interesting. Help me answer a lot of the questions that I've been having. So uh, good luck in, in, in creating life. Thank you very much for your time. It was a great opportunity to interact. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sukrit Ranjan. Now, I'm going to talk some more about abiogenesis, but first I'd like to thank our patrons. Thanks to Dougie Stewart, Stephen Krasaki, David Richards, Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Chilpin, Modzo, George, David Giltan, Andrew M. Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, and Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. There are a few theories that I get a lot of pushback in the comments. One is the Big Bang, and the other one is like the theory of evolution. And you know, they say with the Big Bang, like, where did the universe come from? Well, you know what? Actually, the Big Bang doesn't have to answer that question. The Big Bang just explains that the universe is getting less dense over time, and so it was more dense in the past, and there was a certain point where everything in the observable universe that we could today was very close together, and then some process started it. And we don't know what that process was, and we don't know what came before, and that's fine. That's some other theory's problem. And the same thing goes with the theory of evolution. You, know, you say, like, well, where did life come from? Well, that's not the theory of evolution's problem. Theory of evolution just says that the diversity of species that we see today comes through this process of evolution. But there was some other theory is going to have to figure out where that first life form came from. And when it does, then you'll be able to connect the pieces together. Same thing with the Big Bang. And where did the Big Bang come from? A bio-universe thesis. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so don't get hung up. When you hear about the Big Bang, don't worry about where the universe came from. When you hear about evolution, don't worry about life came from. Those are separate problems. Worry about them separately. Now, there are a couple of interviews that I've done that I think you'll find really interesting. One is, would aliens be able to see Earth and map our planet? And of course, if they can do that, can we map their planets? And then my other interview is on how we might actually search for techno signatures out beyond Earth. How can we find examples of other life forms who are communicating, using technology, building things, changing their environment in ways that we could see and we would know for certain that there is both life and advanced life on that planet. All right, we'll see you next time.